Welcome to Chalk and Coffee, where you can grab a cup of coffee, tea, or whatever you fancy and sit back, relax, and join our extraordinary ESL community. Here you'll meet like-minded educators dedicated to making a difference in the lives of their students and hone your craft. I'm Jacqueline Millay, the host of Chalk and Coffee, and I'm so glad you're here with us today. ESL teachers usually agree that students need to have an understanding of grammar. To be effective speakers and writers in a second language, students need to use proper grammar. The question remains though, what exactly are the most effective methods for teaching it? Here, teachers tend to disagree on what types of grammar teaching methods are the most effective. Some teachers begin their classes with prescribed grammar exercises, and some others try to bring it up a little more organically in classrooms when the error occurs, they might address it. But, but what does the research show? Well, here today to talk with us is Philippa Bell. Philippa is a second language professor specializing in the learning of second language grammar in classroom contexts. Her research is focused on using meaning-focused grammar tasks in classrooms with grammar rules to understand whether providing the rule before, during, or after the task is most helpful. You'll have to listen in to hear what the results actually show. She is also investigating the way that students are learning grammar. So through a corpus analysis of data collected from students secondary one through to secondary five, she's looking at what grammar they're picking up naturally over the years, with the end goal being to spend precious time focusing on the harder grammar that might not be picked up more naturally. So I am thrilled um, that you are all joining us today to discuss all things grammar, and I would like to welcome Philippa Bell to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited uh, to be here today. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I, I thought maybe we could start off with just uh, something super big and very vague about what grammar is to you, just to get everybody a little bit into your head. Um, well, I mean, grammar, I mean, grammar is usually kind of defined as the, the, the structure of language. Um, so it can be extremely broad. It, in, it can include phonological ideas if they can be described in terms of rules. Um, but, but often we discuss grammar in terms of syntax and morphology. Um, but I think one of the interesting things about how we conceptualize grammar today is that we know so much about how language is used that first of all it seems as though language is not really governed by rules so even though grammar can be described can we can we can use rules to describe grammar um language is not rule governed um oh, so all i these, love that okay <laughs> so, so so all of these uh, although language behavior can be described as being rule like it doesn't actually mean that our behavior is rule governed. Um, and so, 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 and the other thing that's very interesting in terms of grammar is that it's extremely dependent on what we're talking about, the vocabulary that, that we are using. So often now, instead of thinking of grammar, we think of lexico grammar because the could, I'm, I'm so sorry it's been a little while since uh, I've been uh, doing my grammar homework. Could you just define lexical grammar? So lexicogrammar is the idea that uh, the, the words that we use, the, the phrases that we use, that will structure the grammar that we are using. So rather than talk about grammar 
and vocabulary separately, we really need to talk about them together. And where does meaning fit into all of this in the grammar? Does that play a part? Well, in grammar it? in this respect is linked to its form, its meaning and its use. Okay. So, for example, if we take the present progress progressive as an example, something we could talk about in terms of form is, oh, you add ing, you use the present participle. Then if you talked about meaning, you could say something like, oh, we use the present progressive to talk about a temporary action that is happening right now. And then in terms of use, we would say, oh, well, we use the present progressive, not the present simple, in order to talk about something temporary in our lives. Great. Okay, so this, thank you. This is, the, the, that, that kind of encompasses how if we, if we think about any kind of grammar, um, we can think about it in terms of how it is formed, what it means, and how it is used. Great. Okay. I, I just wondering, we're all teachers sort of listening to this podcast and we're talking about how we can better our own practices. I just wonder if there are different effective ways that teachers can perhaps address grammar instruction. So, so that's a very, very broad question. And there are many, many different ways that we can introduce grammar into the classroom. In terms of research, um, over the past 20, 25 years, um, there, there, there is this idea of, you know, when we're teaching, we should be focused on meaning. So we should be providing our students with lots of meaningful input and output opportunities. And then when we want to talk about grammar, we bring it in, in, in this, using this term called form focused instruction. So within our overall meaning focus, we then can bring in grammar through form focused instruction. And in terms of the secondary programs uh, at the ministry, this is called focus on form. Okay. Which in a very confusing way has a different meaning in terms of research. <laughs> but, but so this kind of general idea of focus, uh, form focused instruction, there are many, many different approaches that we can use to focus on grammar that range from more implicit teaching techniques to more explicit teaching techniques. Okay. And what we mean by this is that an implicit form-focused instructional technique, it's a dichotomy, but an implicit form-focused instructional technique is really one where the teacher has planned to teach, the teacher knows she is teaching. However, the students can complete the grammar task without ever knowing they are learning grammar. Okay. Can, the, I, I'm trying to think of an example of that. So all of my input, for example, might be and all of the the modeling that I am providing for the students uh, is going to give examples of the simple past. And then I'm going to ask the students to be um, doing their reading or, or, and then in their um, demonstration of understanding tasks that they that they do, then they would be unknowingly providing me with the simple past uh, Well, they, they, they may not provide it because obviously if they're not developmentally ready, um, they, they may still not be marking the simple past. Maybe if I can give you a, another example, because yeah. uh, this implicit form focused instruction, again, it's on a continuum. Um, but one example would be, let's say that you're working with low level students and you start to notice that they are trying to ask each other simple present questions. For example, do you like school? Do, okay. you, do you like to eat pizza? So they're, they're starting to be interested in asking each other simple questions about their likes and dislikes. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. So because um, we know that students, uh, when they start to ask uh, yes, no questions in English, they will not automatically use the dummy do and say, do you like? They may say, uh, you like pizza? Yeah. Right. Uh, or eat uh, you pizza or you eat pizza, the, you know, all of these different types of forms. We also see is you eat pizza. Oh, yes, um, I've seen that one. <laughs> yeah, so, so many different things. And all of these are normal because we know that question formation passes through developmental stages. But as a teacher, if you notice this is starting to happen in your classroom, you might think, aha, this is a good time for me to go in and just provide them with lots of input of simple present yes no questions and production opportunities okay so you might decide right i'm going to create some kind of a decision making task or some kind of a ranking task where they have to interview each other and see out of you know maybe you include 10 different food types and at the end of the task with four people working together they have to rank which student has the least, um, which student likes the most food types and which student likes the least food types. Okay. But through these input and output opportunities, they would be hearing because you would give them lots of input of present simple yes, no questions. And they would have the opportunity to produce them based on how the task is created. Okay, now does that start to change uh, depending on the age? Uh, does, does age play a role in students? Like, would you deal with that a little bit differently in an early primary class with very young students who are not necessarily reading and writing that much yet, as well, opposed I mean, in, to adult learners? Um, well, I mean, in terms of primary, I mean, you know, in the program, there is no kind of real grammar in the primary program. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, obviously we can do these, uh, these more implicit form focused uh, instructional tasks, so we can think of them as meaning focused tasks. But the difference is that the teacher uses them because she wants to help. Right. Uh, students in terms of grammar um well really these tasks we should be using them at all ages okay. um, because they're a really good complement to see what our students can do spontaneously so in terms of grammar what we're looking for is spontaneous ability to use grammar accurately in okay. terms of how it is formed, in terms of what it means, and in terms of when it is used. That's our goal, because that's what grammar is, is used for. Um, and in order to, to, to achieve this goal, we need to help students build up an implicit knowledge base. Because when we only have explicit knowledge about language, it takes time to access it. Yeah, you can't retrieve that very quickly. Okay. Yeah. So, so it means that, you know, maybe if we're writing an essay, we can go back and revise and we can think, oh, yes, in English, we put an ED on past regular verbs, so we can do that. But really what we want to see over time is our students start to develop this type of accuracy in spontaneous communicational situations. So this isn't the same as like deductive learning or not deductive, sorry, inductive learning where where a student would be looking for the patterns or something like that intentionally. This is more almost L1, it, like you're just hearing that input come in in uh, the correct input come in. And, and having output opportunities, which yes. depending on the grammar will be 
more or less accurate. Um, but, but again, this is why we might want to complement with explicit uh, form-focused instruction as well. Um, but uh, yes, well, inductive and deductive, there are many different terms and they are used in different ways. But usually when we talk about grammar in terms of inductive and deductive, we are talking about the creation of an explicit representation. So we are talking about our students ending up with a rule. Okay, that, so they, have, for, that they have come up with or that they have noticed? So there's like noticing going on or? Well, well if, it's an, if we do this inductively, usually we give the students examples and then we ask them to come up with a rule. So this okay. would be inductive rule presentation. And then the opposite of that would be deductive rule presentation, which would be the teacher providing a rule. Okay. Um, and, and is there a benefit? Presentation. Pardon. Sorry, is there a benefit to doing both of those uh, simultaneously or, or do you do them? Are there moments where it's more effective to use one and the other or? Um, so, so there, there, there is quite a lot of research that has looked at the development of language based on inductive and deductive uh, rule presentation. It's quite difficult to tease apart because the inductive groups, the way they have been operationalized in research varies. So okay. to give you an example, I just said that usually there's a rule at the end. However, in some research, for example, research done uh, in French as a second language with Rosemary Erlam, they never got told a rule. Oh, okay. So in that, in that situation, even though it was inductive rule presentation, it would really depend on the students as to whether they created a rule um, or, 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 you know, it wasn't, uh, they, they didn't necessarily create a rule. But overall, there are theoretical arguments to suggest that inductive is more beneficial because it's the students who are creating being, the meaning this, yes exactly and it's the students who are using their terminology to understand so often when we give a deductive rule presentation we will use lots of meta language so for example we might say you know the simple past well some students might not know the simple past as a term mm -hmm. but in their head be very very comfortable with past ed <laughs> yeah yesterday <laughs> yeah, exactly yesterday anything like this that they use and so if it comes from them then obviously this should be helpful because they should have a better understanding um, of the representation that they are creating um, however sometimes what we tend to do in classrooms is we'll give them three examples and say make a rule yeah. Versus telling them a rule and giving them three examples to show what the rule looks like. Well, in that kind of, you know, five minute kind of presentation of grammar, there's probably not really any difference between whether we do it deductively or inductively. You, you're meaning there isn't much difference in the actual acquisition of that knowledge. No, the long term learning of the knowledge is probably not going to really be affected by that five minute deductive rule presentation versus inductive rule presentation. Okay. However, if we take the time and get our students to induce rules, this would be better, or oh, sorry, not better, but overall the research suggests that this should be more, more, more helpful in the long term for, for, for students. Okay, oh, thank you, that was amazing. Okay, I didn't think we were gonna go there, but that's great. <laughs> um, so 
when we're talking about the the young learners who are all learning their second language, they're coming in with baggage anyways. And we talked a little bit sort of about that metalinguistic ability, um, but they're also coming in with knowledge from their own L1, um, from their own first languages. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how perhaps using uh, the L1 in a class might affect the L2 development, because I know it's been, it's a hot topic, um, and we thought we had it all solved, and it seems like there's a shift happening, and I just wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah, well, so I mean, in terms of grammar, um, nowadays, uh, there's quite a lot of research, uh, lots of research being done in Quebec in uh, in immersion classrooms, in ESL classrooms, in um, classe de francisation, lots of research being done, um, which highlights that using some kind of cross-linguistic grammatical pedagogy can be beneficial for, the, for, for, for grammatical development. So in traditional approaches to L2 instruction, the L1 was kind of blamed for everything. So if we think of behavioral principles of learning and the audiolingual methodology, um, it was very much a case of, is this the same in English and French? If it is, that's fine, they should get it. But if it's different, we need to help students. Um, uh, uh, you know, we need to help students with this grammar. Um, and then once we realize that L2 grammar develops often in similar ways to L1 grammar, research kind of turned and became very, very interested in L2 developmental sequences. So to give you a kind of concrete example, um, in terms of uh, both L1 and L2 learners, and obviously we're talking of different ages here, yeah. <laughs> but L1 and L2 learners, for example, with the past, um, with the simple past, will start off by not marking past verbs. So they will say something like, yesterday I go. Okay. And mm -hmm. this is the same for L1 and L2. This does not mean that we may not also hear yesterday I went, but in general, you know, they start off not marking verbs for past. They use other lexical uh, items in order to mark, uh, yeah, to mark uh, the, the past. And then the first, uh, the first past verbs that tend to emerge are irregulars. Oh, really? So for example, we'll hear yesterday I was, yesterday I went, but really? we'll still hear yesterday I walk to school. Okay. Um, so past ED, um, and then, so, and this is because the irregular verbs have stayed irregular because they're frequent. Okay. So not all irregular verbs are, are frequent, but there are a, a kind of um, um, a, 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 a large number of irregular verbs in the top 100 past simple verbs. Oh, so yes, then, I think they're in the back of our agenda somewhere. For <laughs> <laughs> so, then, so then what happens is that we'll start to hear ED emerging. So, you know, we'll start to hear these lovely yesterday I walked to school as opposed to yesterday I walk. But at the same time, we'll then start to hear things. And remember that before we heard yesterday I went, well, now we'll start to th hear things like yesterday I wented. Or oh, yesterday yes. I goed. That overgeneralizing of this overgeneralization. And this is a great error because it shows that they are starting to understand the rule-driven nature of regular past ED. Right. And then over time, with practice and with input opportunities and output opportunities, what we'll see is that they generally start to become more accurate with both irregular 
and regular verbs. So to, just to, if I can stop you for a second, if that was going on in class, and uh, would you take the moment, would you time out the class and say, let's take a moment, I'm hearing lots of people, um, I don't know, using uh, the, the um, irregular form incorrectly, would you, would you take a time out and kind of do an explicit teaching moment there or is this how would you address it at, at a certain point or do I, you I, I, I never say never because you know you really you know depends on the specific context but in that particular situation I would probably just provide corrective feedback okay you know just kind of see what goes on but then in my mind I would think right this is a really good time in terms of their developmental readiness to do some planned grammar teaching of the regular past Okay, and just for our teachers who are listening, what what would what could that look like? Well, there are many different uh, ways we could do it. So if we go with a kind of more implicit approach to to teaching it, uh, I mean, one of the one of the meaning focused tasks that we created that I think the kids enjoyed. This would obviously have to be for kids um, either primary intensive or in secondary school because it's quite uh, reading heavy. Mm -hmm. But what we gave them is that we gave them a nursery. Um, are they called nursery rhymes? Um, like the three little pigs, not nursery rhymes. Um, oh, like story. a little story, like a little fable or something like that. Yes. Okay. So we gave them. So the teacher actually read uh, out Goldilocks. Okay. And there were many, many, many examples of past ED. And then the goal of the task was that the teacher then had to rewrite the fairy tale into five sentences. And then when she was uh -huh. happy with that, four sentences, then three, then two, then one. Oh, and the great end, idea. The end part of the input task, the input part of the task, was to have Goldilocks as one sentence. Oh my gosh, wow. And then the students, so this, this is also a really important point, is that when we're teaching grammar, we don't want to just think of output practice. Mm -hmm. So the teacher there, when she was reading Goldilocks, she was giving them a lot of input practice. Yeah. Um, and so then when they did the output practice, they did the same thing, but with two other nursery rhymes. Uh, sorry, with two other fairy tales. And then at the end as the class, they had to decide which one-liners were the best. Oh, I love it. So all of that is a meaning-focused way of teaching the past. It might right. not be sufficient. We also know that the past is very, very difficult for students to hear. Oh. So we say that ED is but frequent in the input. Well, actually, our research in intensive classrooms, Laura Collins's research in intensive classrooms, has shown that actually ED is not that common in the input. Okay. Um, but we've also, we've also um, done research showing that it's very difficult to hear ED. Oh, And okay. so it can be helpful to help students become more aware that this sound is in the input. Okay. So, so, so one research project that I did under, I was Laura Collins's research assistant. She was working with Pavel Trevimovich um, as part of a, 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 a project, uh, the ALERT project at Concordia University. We used stories that had lots of ED and we worked with the students with the stories to focus on meaning. So they understood the stories. And then we gave them a fill in the gap Okay. And the fill in the gap, the words that were missing, not all of them, because we had to kind of see that they weren't just adding ED because they knew it was coming. But the words in the story, lots of the words that we'd taken out were ED words. 
Okay. And then when they listened, if they heard the ED, they would write it. But okay. often they don't hear it. And so this is one really interesting way of raising students' perception that these ED sounds are there, with the idea being if, is if we can raise this, uh, raise their awareness, mm -hmm. future input will be useful. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And then um, once they've learned about that awareness raising, does that become a habit for, for children or is that something that is well, we, developmental? We we don't have long-term longitudinal research to show whether that particular type of intervention helps in the in the long term. We do have research showing that it is beneficial for short-term uh, language performance. Okay. Um, but we do have data from different proficiency levels that suggests that uh, we do get better at this. Okay. Um, but, but the idea that, you know, we could raise their awareness, the ED exists in the input um, and we can also help them, you know, they can also look at it in writing and we can get them to underline ED because you don't pay attention, often you don't pay attention to it when you're reading. Um, yeah. All of this can hopefully raise their awareness and it would hopefully help them over time learn ED. So do, I, I know that you had, um, I, I kind of peeked at some of your papers before our interview. Um, and you had written about, um, it was about um, uh, gender in French, I think. Um, yes. It, it's vocabulary, it's gender, learner awareness and incidental learning. Yes. Um, I, I just wonder um, if there were some reasons um, why it didn't, it didn't seem to lead in those cases to the superior learning. Was that a long-term thing or what's the difference between what we're talking about with the raising awareness with the, the past tense and then raising the awareness in the, in your article that you had written? Well, well these are two different situations from the point of view that the ED is raising awareness, um, is helping students realize that when they are listening to English, these words finish in this id, to d sound mm. because students aren't necessarily hearing it. Okay. So, so, you know, we say yesterday I walked, but the student might just hear yesterday I walk. Yeah. So the idea there was to make them more aware that, that, or to make them aware that this sound exists in English at the end of words in the hope that this would then over time become good input for them to process and to learn uh, ED. In terms of um, awareness and uh, the, the, the study that uh, I did uh, in uh, 2006, 2007 as part of my, that was part of my master's uh, thesis. Um, here, I was interested in understanding whether it was necessary for learners to become aware at the level of verbalizing a rule, whether that was helpful when they were learning something incidentally. So here there wasn't really teaching going on okay, in the sense was... that, that there was teaching from the point of view that I had created a crossword and I had mined it with French nouns, sorry, masculine nouns in French ending in ou, ou, a, u. Mm -hmm. And I'd always had the definite or the indefinite article. So they always had this potential opportunity to realize, ah, le couteau. And you yeah. know, learn that le goes with o in mm -hmm. two-syllable uh, two nouns uh, normally. 
Um, and so here, what we found is that as the students uh, completed the crossword and they were exposed to all these examples where they could have created a rule, what we found is that students or participants who created a rule or seem to be aware of something about gender, masculine, or le, something about the noun ending, and students who had no idea. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> but students who had no idea why they were, you know, looking at these different words to complete a crossword, they just thought they were totally focused on meaning. What we found in terms of uh, performance at the end was that there were no difference between the two groups. Okay. So this slight kind of understanding um, wasn't this awareness that there was something about grammatical gender wasn't actually helpful to them. I, I think if I'm not mistaken, there were two participants or three participants who correctly understood the rule. So they realized that if you have le, sorry, if you have a noun ending in all, which is two syllables. You had the le. You had the le. And they, on their post-test, they got 100%. Okay. Um, so the, the students who had created a very explicit rule, they did do better. But the participants who really just thought that it, it was something to do with grammatical gender, but they couldn't kind of put their thumb on it, they, they didn't, did not behave um, more accurately than the, the, the participants that had no idea um, why they were doing the crossword. And, and do you think that if they had been like you were, you were raising that awareness very intentionally um, for your students with the, the sounds, do you think that it would have had, you could have the same kind of effect on, on the learning? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that students aren't hearing the O. I think they're just not linking the L to the O. And there are many, many different reasons uh, why this could be. I mean, just one reason is that, you know, as, as learners of French, we just get told, oh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. We have no idea why it's L and La. <laughs> and it's very rare. It's very rare in textbooks to see any reference to the fact that noun endings can be good indicators of gender choice. Yes, um, I, and, I had no idea. I am going yeah, to and, go and, to Roy, Roy, Roy Lister has done research in immersion classrooms into this, um, and it's helpful to, to raise their awareness of the fact that noun endings can be helpful, but that's not something we often see in, uh, in classroom textbooks. Yeah, no, you don't actually, um, especially not at uh, uh, the lower levels where you would be beginning that kind of yeah, which would really be nice then, you know, yes. <laughs> if, if your students were able to understand enough meta language to do that, because, again, that would give lots of input over the years <laughs> to help, yeah. uh, help them, um, you know, start to learn those forms and then in terms of output, start to produce them and maybe be more receptive to corrective feedback. Yeah, and so we've kind of touched on it a little bit here with auditory and, and oral and um, written production. I'm just wondering if there's a difference when you're dealing with oral versus written production as far as grammar instruction is concerned? Or is that too big a question? Um, so in, in terms of, um, well, I'm just trying to think, to be honest, when we, um, when we look at different types of form-focused instruction techniques, very frequently, even if there is writing involved or reading involved, very frequently there is oral practice. 
Um, so whether it's input practice through listening, which mm -hmm. is less common, often, you know, there's some reading going on in terms of input practice, but there are both. And then often, very often, we have some kind of oral practice. Um, but it really depends on the type of uh, form-focused instructional technique that you are using. Okay. Um, so, so one, one, one. Uh, I mean, I haven't really touched on explicit form-focused instructional techniques. And one, one um, technique that uh, is really interesting and is appreciated by teachers who who have used it is uh, something called a dictogloss. Okay. And the, the reason I raise this is because even though it's actually practicing grammar more in terms of the output is written, the students are also discussing with each other orally. So they're really practicing the grammar both orally and textually. Okay. So, so a dictogloss is basically, let's say that, uh, for example, the past, a regular past, um, if you see it coming out and you want to see whether your students are capable of using the, the regular past when they have time to, to think about it, you can give them a dictogloss. And a dictogloss is a short text that is seeded with the linguistic feature. Okay. So for example, you would write a story, a short story that happened in the past. And then what the students do is that they listen to this story and they know that they are going to have to reconstruct the story in groups with the goal being that they reconstruct the meaning of the story, only the meaning of the story. Okay. So it's not a dictation. And uh, so what they do, so usually what happens is the teacher will read this short text. The students just listen the first time, maybe with a comprehension question or two. Then the second time they're allowed to take notes, but the notes cannot be sentences. So you have to read quickly enough and the students have to understand what, what is expected from them. And then sometimes there's a third reading. And then after this, they get into groups and collaboratively with one piece of paper, they have to write, rewrite, reconstruct the text. Fantastic. And through this text reconstruction, there is so much metalinguistic discussion. You have students, uh, our focus is maybe on ED. It may turn out that they never focus on ED and they get them all wrong. It may turn out that they have massive arguments about whether it's ED or whether it's I was going or I went, <laughs> you know, so, so but, but all of this is collaborative dialogue where they are using grammar, they are practicing grammar, they're practicing their discussion, they are trying to remember what they heard based on the good input that you've given them. Um, and this is just a great way to practice grammar in an explicit form focused way. I can see all of the teachers taking notes on this part and ready to try that in class uh, tomorrow. Yeah, That's no, fantastic. It's, it's a lot of fun and students overall usually enjoy it. And it actually fits very well with what is uh, done in Francais Langue d'Enseignement. So it fits with this idea that we should be having metalinguistic discussions um, rather than telling our students this is how the past works. We should be asking them how they think the past works and seeing what their metalinguistic representations look like based on this information we can then better help them because we know sometimes they make up these crazy rules but we don't understand what these rules are but in through these kind of um, metalinguistic discussions we can have an insight into what's going on in their mind and we can help them when their rules are wonky, not, yeah, <laughs> are wonky. <laughs>
Now, we're, we've been focusing a lot on some of our learners that are not perhaps quite as bilingual, but a, a lot of teachers in Quebec, myself included, um, teach sometimes uh, in the easel program. And that's uh, enriched or even language arts, I think, might be taught in some schools. And um, so we have all of these different ages and all these different proficiency levels. And so um, they're all consuming language on different levels. So some of them are watching movies and it's very natural because they're coming from um, English households. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with the question of which English grammar to address in class? How, how do you, if I, I don't know if I made it clear enough, but... Uh, yeah, well, no, I mean, I think it really depends on where, you know, within each situation, what the potential goals are for those students. Um, so you said goals, that's important, because we always need to have those outcomes in mind, right? Yeah, and as a, you know, as a researcher into grammar, I take a very descriptive view of grammar where, um, you know, I'm interested in seeing how users of English actually use the grammar rather than saying, we must say, if I were you. If lots and lots of English users are saying, if I was you, well, why can't we say it? So this is a researcher, you know, descriptive grammar is of, of a lot of um, interest to me. However, in terms of students, um, we know that prescriptive grammar, which is, you know, if you think about things that annoy you when people use certain grammatical structures in a way that you feel is incorrect, um, you know, that, that's kind of prescriptive grammar. And um, if our students are going to go into the workforce where they will be expected to write in formal English, for example, mm -hmm. then clearly we need to help our students to understand what is appropriate in different contexts. So this does not mean that we should be drilling them with prescriptive grammar rules. However, it does mean that we should be making them aware that, for example, I'm gonna might be fine in standard, well, maybe, you know, between friends and even, you know, potentially with a teacher. Even, um, in, however, even in books. I mean, some of the novels that my students are reading, they there's tons of dialogue that is happening in it. And that dialogue is very natural. So they're seeing that in a written in a written form. In, in a written form, but the, the type of written form is an oral language form. Yeah. So, but, but, but again, even in writing, you know, for example, when you write on Facebook, when you write a, you know, you write a, um, a message to a friend on Facebook, I'm sorry, Anglophones are not writing, I am going to. No, they're, 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 they're different... going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so from that point of view, you know, if our goal is to teach our students how to interact on social media in informal contexts, then gonna is more important than going to, for example. Um, so it's really a case of trying to understand what your students will be using, or sorry, how your students will be using English, how they're using it now, mm -hmm. and how they will be using it in the future. But again, these kind of grammatical differences, we can do lessons on that. We can, the whole lesson could be um, to show in what types of register do we use going to? In what type of registers do we use gonna? Where is the overlap between speech and writing? Because 25 years ago, I feel as though going to was very much a written form. 
and gna was very much an informal spoken form well now i think that division is shift. much uh, yeah is much more blurred um so so you know we could do this great consciousness raising activity where we could take examples from um usage so the the, the um the 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 sorry i've just uh, had a total mind blank the coca um the corpus of and i've just had a total corpus oh, that's of okay American, uh, corpus of contemporary american english so this is a great resource where we can go and we could type in g-o-n-n-a and we could see what comes out we could type in going to and see what comes out and we could get our students to analyze okay so in what types of written input do we see gonna so maybe for example if we looked at coca we would see that we see it in blogs okay maybe not in newspaper articles so we could raise their awareness of different types of uh, register and when it is okay, both in terms of writing and speaking, to use something informal. And when even in speaking, you may need to use the more formal uh, form, which uh, to be honest, lots of our students won't really have had much exposure to some of those more formal um, forms because when we're teaching, we often use the informal register as well. Yeah. For sure. I, I'm going to do stuff all the time in my class. With my students. <laughs> um, and so, but you know, that, that would be a great way of using, you know, a, very, a lovely metalinguistic discussion, raising their awareness of, of register of how, you know, one form can be used in different ways. Um, and then obviously, if they're used to doing this type of analysis, we can do it with lots of other forms. Yeah, what I really appreciate in what you said, Philippa, was that you didn't you didn't say there was good grammar and bad grammar. You you've kind of just said there's grammar for all sorts of different reasons, and yes. and I think it's kind of it's um, we've moved beyond that old sort of uh, idea of good and bad grammar and what should be accepted and and what shouldn't be accepted in class. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it is to do with corpus analyses that have shown that sometimes these uh, forms that have been called non-standard English. Um, actually sometimes they carry meanings that are not part of standard English. So, so sometimes when we've said that we shouldn't use these certain structures through corpus analysis, we see, well, actually this structure is used in a very specific situation to mean this, and a different structure is used in a different situation. So these forms that we've thought of as not good forms, it, it just simply doesn't really hold true anymore. Um, and it depends on the dialect you're speaking. It depends on who you're talking to, the relationship you have with that person. There are so many variables that go into play when we make these linguistic choices. Uh, and that, that is fascinating in terms of grammar. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think it takes language learning in our ESL classrooms when the students are in an easel situation or something like that to a whole different level where they can actually be learning about um, language in a different way. Yes. It's well, brilliant. Well, to, give, to give another quick example, we always say that though is a synonym for although. So in written English, we say though is a synonym for although. So some, some, uh, some type of um, subordinating conjunction. So often at the beginning of a phrase or at the beginning, so at, at the beginning of a clause. Yeah. Um, however, in reality, corpus, is, corpus has shown us that we don't use though orally in that way very frequently. We very frequently use it at the end of a sentence to say, he was nice though. 
Yeah, as a as a question marker. Yeah, yeah. So, so we don't you we don't always use it as a, as a as a subordinating conjunction. But if you look in a grammar book, That's you'll get told is. that though equals although. But actually, in spoken language and also in formal uh, written language, um, it, it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily carry that meaning. God, it is. It's it's wonderful. I love language. It's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Um, I just wonder if the idea of good and bad, it's kind of like a myth that we could perhaps lay to rest. Are there any other myths or old habits that ESL teachers should lay to rest? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, one uh, area which is very controversial, but uh, is of interest and we touched on it before, but then we kind of changed the subject is uh, related to L1 in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so we used to think that languages were separate. So we had kind of, you know, our L1 language uh, system and our L2 or L3 or additional language system. But now we think of language as, you know, it's our language repertoire. So a bilingual is not two monolinguals. A no. bilingual is a bilingual and their language repertoire does not look the same. So there. So let's say an English French bilingual. My English language repertoire does not look the same as a monolingual English speaker. And my French language repertoire certainly doesn't look the same as a French language, a monolingual French speaker. And so this is this is my bilingual self. Um, and many, many people have many more languages. You know, it's not just a bilingual, it's a, it's a plurilingual self. Um, and so in terms of grammar, we know that certain, the L1 grammar or our L1 grammars do have a, an effect on how we learn our L2. So to give you an example from research done by Patsy Lightbound and Nina Spada, and later um, including research done with Alem Almar, they looked at uh, question formation by francophones. And in um, French, when you invert questions, you often cannot invert with a noun. You have to invert with a pronoun. Right. So, for example, I couldn't say um, parle Jacqueline anglais. I'd have to say Jacqueline parle-t-elle anglais. Yes. But in English, it's absolutely fine to say, can Jacqueline speak English? But what right. we see is that Francophones naturally, if we ask them to accept whether something is okay in English, Francophones will naturally be more likely to accept the inverted pronoun and reject the inverted noun. Oh. So this is a really abstract French rule that the vast majority of French speakers, even linguists, will not necessarily be able to discuss explicitly. Um, this is, you know, this, this rule in French that naturally is, is naturally carried over into English. And when we analyze their, their English output and their acceptability judgments, we see that it is having an effect on their learning of English. So this kind of thing, raising their awareness of this, can be so helpful. I, I love that. I love that there's all these shifts and that that teaching continues to grow and we we continue to learn as teachers. Yes. Like this. It's 
it's, and we continue to learn that things that we've said in the past are not right and we have to rethink and uh, change and things that we thought oh no we shouldn't do that we used to do can also be done in a in a more nuanced way um you know we're not going back to the old direct method of we must not speak uh, sorry we're, we're not going we're not going back to the grammar translation method where everything had to be you know l1 to l2 or l2 yeah. to l1 it's a much much more nuanced approach based on a, a huge amount of research um and, and development in terms of our understanding of how languages should be taught and how languages are learned um but 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 it's, it's you know it's, it's fascinating to see uh, the different options that are available to us in terms of teaching grammar it really it really is uh, speaking of all that research i wonder if you would share with us uh, where you're going next and what you're looking at now um, well, well some research that i um did that i'm publishing at the moment uh, is on um the timing of giving rules in the classroom so in terms of research, there are reasons why we should not give a rule. So if we're trying to focus on the development of implicit knowledge, we don't want to give a rule because we want the students to use language for input and output without necessarily knowing they're learning. However, what we see in classroom context is that the vast majority of the time, even when we have very meaning focused grammar tasks, we end up talking about grammar, either because the teacher genuinely believes we have to provide a rule, or because students ask the teacher, why, why are we doing this? Why is this? Uh, I, I don't understand why it's I was going and not I went. You know, students ask questions. You also hear students asking questions with each other. They're giving each other yeah. feedback for all of these reasons in the classroom context, very frequently a rule is provided, whether it's in a quick, you know, corrective feedback episode or whether it's through a presentation. Um, so what we wanted to do is we wanted to understand Okay, usually in the classroom when we're teaching grammar, we kind of tend to, if we're planning to teach grammar, we often tend to give a rule first, with this idea being, oh, this rule will structure our students' learning. And everything that follows in the lesson will be better learnt because they've been given this rule at the beginning of the lesson. So what we did is we decided to test this hypothesis and we created meaning-focused grammar tasks uh, where the students were getting input and output opportunities with the grammar and we either gave them the rule at the beginning or we stopped the task in the middle these were two hour tasks so we stopped the task after an hour or a bit less and we gave them the rule it was actually we asked them to come up with the rule we had a, a little inductive uh, rule presentation exercise or activity or we asked them to come up with the rule at the end so they did the whole task having no idea they were doing grammar and at the very, very end, we asked them to come up with a rule. So what the results have actually shown is that overall, there is no difference. <laughs> wow. So whether we give the rule at the beginning, whether we give the rule at the in the middle, or whether we give the rule at the end, it does not make a difference. Students' grammar develops very, very nicely with these meaning-focused tasks. Um, the teacher who used these tasks did not like providing the rule at the end oh. because she felt that it was like a missed opportunity and the students could not go back to look at their task 
Um, this was because she was doing research. Um, however, you know, now we've got these research results that show us it doesn't really seem to make much of a difference. Obviously, we need more research to understand, but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. So why not play around with it? Sometimes we can give it to our students at the beginning, sometimes in the middle, sometimes in the end. It shows that they, they always have to be on their toes. They don't always know why they don't always know that they're studying grammar. Sometimes they do if we give it to them before. Sometimes they don't, they don't get it until the end. And obviously in a real classroom, if they do the task and you give them the grammar at the end, they can always go back and look at anything yeah, they of course. and talk about it and, you know, spend time correcting each other. Um, but, but yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's research, uh, ongoing research into trying to understand when we should be providing an explicit representation of target grammar. That's great. Well, I, I hope with your permission, I can put in a, a link perhaps to your um, um, page at uh, UCAM. Yes. And, and our listeners can go and they can check out your, your other papers that you, yes, that, you that, have would be, that, that would be that would be great. Partner. Thank you. That'd be good. And I've also taken down as we're as we're chit chatting, a couple of your references of uh, some of your colleagues. So maybe I can um, find some of their uh, references a little bit later and I'll put those in the podcast notes as well for yeah that's perfect or I can send them to you that would be even that would be even more efficient that would be great <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well I I would love to say thank you but I just want to ask one more final question before uh, before we sign off um, what would you hope that the listeners take away from this chat that we've had tonight I, I think that uh, overall it would be nice in um, for, for the listeners to take away from this chat that grammar does not have to be structured. Grammar lessons do not have to be structured. Students do not have to be given a rule and asked to practice it. Grammar develops over time. I am a fluent user of French. I teach in French. Do I always use the passé composé correctly? No. <laughs> something that takes you know that this idea that we will become like a, as I mentioned a monolingual speaker of another language is, is just simply not true but there are so many great ways to teach grammar that are really interesting so students and teachers often think that you know grammar is necessary but boring that was the results of a of, a, of research that Gladys Jean and Daphne Simard did with French as a second language and English as a second language teachers in Quebec. Grammar is essential, we need it, it's necessary, but it's boring. Well, the, you know, often the types of exercises that we see are, are, are relatively boring. However, there are so many collaborative, interesting ways to teach grammar. Um, and students, when they do these types of activities, they really enjoy it. And it doesn't mean that they're going to start using that grammar point accurately tomorrow. They won't. It's a lifelong process. However, hopefully it should start to help them notice things in the input and start to become more aware of things in the input and over time work towards using grammar in terms of its form, meaning and use in more target-like ways. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Philippa. Thank you very, very much. If you're interested in exploring Philippa's research, don't forget to check out the links in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for joining me this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your fellow teachers. And if you like what I'm doing here, hit the subscribe button. 
Don't forget, I read each and every email and bit of feedback, whether it's on Instagram, Twitter, or by email. So don't be shy, drop me a line, and I welcome all your comments. If you have questions or a podcast topic idea that you'd like to hear discussed on Chalk and Coffee, let me know by using the message button on Anchor FM. You simply hit it and record your message, and I'll try and answer your question in a future episode of the podcast. <laughs>